today for a few minutes, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning of verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Paul introduces by saying, as we're doing today, what these holidays are about is not discovering new truth, it's about anchoring ourselves in the truth, coming back to the core of what we are to believe, to build and strengthen our faith. What he's saying is, I wanna remind you of what the core message is. And then he goes on. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, by the way, Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, uh, many of whom are still living, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. What exactly is the gospel? Well, there's really two core statements. The first is that Christ died for our sins. Now, many of us would be perfectly happy to leave it there because that's a sentimental idea. Even Mahatma Gandhi admired the Jesus that gave up himself for his ideal and for the good of people and, and the effect of that sacrifice on humanity. If you see the gospel purely as the sacrifice of Jesus, there's lots of people who have made that sacrifice. Jesus doesn't rise more nobly above any of them, even though indeed his sacrifice was noble. No, the gospel is not just about the death of Christ. There is no Christian message without the resurrection. Christ died for sins according to the scripture, was buried and was raised again on the third day also according to the scriptures. So the whole gospel is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me just be respectfully clear. Those parts of the broad Christian community in the world with all due respect to the sincerity of their worship even this day on Easter Sunday, when you take away the veracity, the authenticity, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have literally walked away from our core message. What you're left with is a very safe, emotionally sentimental set of ideals about personal sacrifice that may work out some good in society, but it does nothing to redeem the world. Because the gospel teaches us that in his death, Jesus defeated sin, and in his resurrection, he defeated death. And because of that, those of us that are in him 
Sin is defeated in our lives. We've been forgiven, and we can face death without fear because it no longer holds sway or authority or power. There is life beyond. We know that because of the risen Lord. You see, Paul makes it as clear as possible. And of all the books in the Bible, very few doubt the authenticity of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, which was written roughly 20 years after the events that he describes and that we're celebrating today. Now, many of you are here, and you're very devout Christians. Some of you are regular attenders. Some of you chose to worship with us today. We're, we're blessed for that. Others of you are here out of respect to your family members who are more religious than you are, and especially respect and welcome you for coming, spouses, partners, children, Parents are here uh, out of that respect. And within that group, there are some of you that were raised as Christians and um, no longer believe that. It's one thing to believe these ideas as a child. It's another thing to believe it as an enlightened adult. Well, Paul is not speaking to children. He's speaking to adults. And he's going to share with us that the resurrection is so authoritative and so established that it's not actually the point of the chapter we're reading. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to use as an apologetic for how we can be confident of the resurrection of Jesus and the impact it ought to have on our lives and our faith. But that's not why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. He wrote it because the people in Corinth were struggling with the possibility of their own resurrection. And get this. Paul is using the well-established historic fact of Christ's resurrection as proof that they will be raised. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the time of Paul, in the early church, the historic fact of Jesus' resurrection was so established that he's not writing to prove the resurrection, he's using it to prove the hope that we have. It's the argument for eternal life. 2,000 years later, we're trying to argue for his resurrection. Now, in this very first section, Paul runs through a quick list of reasons why we can trust that this, in fact, happened. First of all, it's the Scriptures. All of this happened according to the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets. Centuries before, Christ fulfilling more than 300 messianic prophecies in his birth, in his life, and in his death. Just fantastic, and the resurrection being part of that. We see this fulfillment of Scripture as evidence that Christ was indeed the one that the Old Testament Scriptures foresaw, promised, and and who came. The next thing he talks about is the empty tomb. Please pay attention to the fact that this revolution of faith known as Christianity was birthed in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, and where he was buried by those who at the core of their message was, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead, and thousands of people came to faith in a culture that did not believe in resurrection. This was the oddest thing for them to hear, just as odd as it is for us today, for you to be here as a person of enlightened thinking and to ponder a supernatural act of resurrection That was just as difficult for the Jewish people. They did not believe in physical resurrection. And yet 3,000 of them, the first time Peter preached, came to faith. Why? Because all you had to do was go check the grave. 
and it was empty. Not only was it empty, but then the third thing he talks about is that Jesus showed up. They touched him. Remember the story of Thomas? Jesus appeared to the disciples, and Thomas wasn't there, and then Thomas came, and they said, we've seen the Savior, and he said, no, I don't believe it. Couldn't happen. Well, that's, that's the normal mentality even in Jesus' day. That just doesn't happen. People don't raise from the dead. By the way, my dad named me after Thomas, the doubting disciple. <laughs> dad, why did you do He said, Thomas is one of my favorite disciples. I said, why? He said, because he asked all the right questions, and once he committed, he committed himself to the You read. Read what Thomas says in the gospel. He's actually a brilliant guy. But he... he <laughs> He's passionate, he's committed. But he's like you and me here who need proof. I had no idea how, how well-suited my name was for me. I needed more than just to be told and to see the resurrected Jesus on a, what we used to call a flannel graph board in Sunday school. I needed more than that. I was like Thomas. He said, look, if I, if I touch his hands, touch the wounds in his side, then I'll believe. And Jesus shows up. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, see, now you've believed because you've seen. But even more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that's how millions upon millions have experienced the transforming work of Christ by daring to believe that those first people who Peter says, some have fallen asleep, but many are still with us. You know what he's really saying is? If you don't believe me, go ask them. They saw it too. And then he talks about them seeing the disciples. One of the most profound evidences for the resurrection was the transformation in the disciples. All of them were martyred for this message. Crucified, beheaded. They were all martyred for this faith. How could a group of men give up their lives for something? It was inescapable because they had seen and experienced the risen Christ. And then he goes on and he says, and not just to them, last of all, he appeared to me. This is one we rarely talk about, but the transformation of Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, to Paul the apostle to the Gentiles is one of the greatest arguments for the validity of the gospel that you will ever see. Paul lays out his own case when in another of his epistles in the New Testament, he talks about the life that he had before, before he joined on with Jesus. He was like a rock star in Judaism. He was wealthy. He had influence. He had resources. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He had a PhD in the law, and he had influence. You know, in the scene of the first martyr in the Gospels, it says that those who stoned Stephen, they laid their coats at Saul's feet. This is before he was converted. And what that indicates is that Saul had authority. He may have actually orchestrated the actions that led to this death. Because after that, being motivated by that power, he got authority to go, as he says in his own story, as we just read, and to persecute Christians. How idiot, what? idiot gives up a life of such power and success in order instead to spend the rest of his life 
traveling, being beaten and stoned, constantly having those who want to kill him, being shipwrecked, and ultimately beheaded for his faith. What idiot! Quote Mr. T, pity the fool. <laughs> is, that, is that too old of a... Yeah, am I... What idiot would do that? He had no choice. Because on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord appeared to him, and the only thing he could say was, my Lord. All that is listed so quickly by Paul because it was so established. This is the gospel. This is how we know it's true. So that being the case, how does that bear on our faith? The first thing we see is that without the gospel, without the reality of the resurrection, we have a hopeless faith. We're going to read from verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who also have died or fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's where we are as Christ followers if there was no resurrection. First, our faith is false. Worse yet, those of us who preach it are deceiving and lying. Second, our faith is futile. We come to Christ for forgiveness of sins, but in fact, if there's no resurrection, that has not been cared for. We are still in our sins. Third, our faith is fatal. Those who have died Believing in Christ, trusting in eternal life, have in fact perished. Add that all together, our faith is foolish. We are of all people most to be pitied. Pitied for the stupidity of our faith. Here's one thing you need to get from this. The gospel allows no one to be neutral about Jesus. We either are here or we are on the other side of the equation, and that is a hope-filled faith. And we go on, and he says in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Just jump forward now for sake of time to verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, the great professor and lawyer of the law, lays out this fantastic argument. And remember, the argument is not to prove the resurrection of Christ, it's to prove our inevitable resurrection because of the undeniable fact of the resurrection of Christ. And he says, if Christ has been raised, the exact opposite exists of what I just portrayed. Instead of being false, it's true. It's true. Christ has indeed, which means in truth, been raised from the dead. Rather than our faith being futile, it's real. We're not still in our sins. We've been made alive in Christ. Rather than being fatal, we have life. We can say, death, where is your sting? It has no power over us. Paul would say, we do not mourn for those who have died as those who have no hope. And then finally, rather than fools, <laughs> we are victors. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, no neutrality. The gospel doesn't allow you a safe, sentimental Jesus that you can say, well, I like the Jesus that we can just live up to his noble teaching. The gospel doesn't let you do that. And Jesus didn't let us do it because that gospel that Paul reminds us of, you know who gave it to us? Jesus. Jesus talked about his death for the sins of the world and the validation of that in his resurrection. It was Jesus that said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead. So here's the thing. C.S. Lewis points this out beautifully. Jesus said that he was God, and he said that he would raise from the dead. What kind of person says that? Three categories of people. The first would be if he said it and it was true. Well, in that case, we have to do business with it. We have to come to terms with it. The other two flow out of the other possibility that he said it and it wasn't true. Now, what kind of person claims to be God and it's not true? What kind of person does that? Two possibilities. He's lying, or he's crazy. What Josh McDowell says, he's either lord, liar, or lunatic. See, there's no middle ground. You are forced to make a decision. Just like we talked about Friday night, like the two who hung on the cross beside him. You're either the thief on one side of the cross who chooses to mock Jesus stay in his own self-pride, his own trust that he's figured it all out, and he's in control of his destiny right till the very end, and he makes a mockery of Jesus, that's really the path. If you're not going to follow Christ, then you may as well just make a mockery of him and his followers. Or the other thief, same path, same end to life, but as he hung there, he saw the emptiness of everything. He saw that all of his choices ultimately lead to where it leads all of us. In the end, 
whether we are being executed or just dying of old age, we're all left naked with nothing and in need of being ready to meet our Maker. And his decision was, Lord, remember me. And that's why Jesus said to him, and only him, today, when our dying is done, you're going to be with me in paradise. Those are, those are our options. Uh, many of you are on Facebook. By the way, I, I'd encourage you to, if you're on Facebook, to like the Journey Community Church if you haven't yet. We use it for a lot of social engagement, let you know what's going on. And uh, the, the graphic uh, for the service said, come and celebrate the defeat of sin and death. How many, how many saw that graphic? We actually boosted that. We, we paid to get it out across all of New England. So we got a lot of interesting reactions and response. And one of the comments was from a man on North Shore. Again, the subtitle was, come and celebrate the defeat of sin and death. And his comment was, but yet there is still sin and death. I deleted the comment. And after the first service when I shared this story, because Anna helps run the Facebook page with me, she said, you know, I was actually responding to him and I hit send and all of a sudden it wasn't there anymore. What would you have said? Yeah, we get to choose if they win or not in our life. That's, that's the right, see, you're a much more compassionate person than I am. I'm just like, <laughs> no soup for you. <laughs> yeah, there is still sin and death, but only for those on this side of the cross who say, I am the master of my destiny. I choose what I believe and I choose what's right. But for those of us who surrender, there is Victory. There is victory. About a year ago, it's hard to forget that 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt were martyred, beheaded by ISIS. Our media just simply said they were Egyptian workers. But they were committed Christians and they were killed for their faith. In fact, the video that is still out there for you to see ISIS put a subtitle under the video of the scene on the beach, and the subtitle says this, the people of the cross, followers of the hostile Egyptian church, devout followers of Jesus. If you pay attention to the video, you can actually read their lips as they give each person as they're on their knee an opportunity to renounce their faith and to devote themselves to becoming a follower of Islam, and they don't. And you can actually read their lips saying as their throats are being slashed, my Lord Jesus. 21 dead. Several days later, the Coptic church put out a list of the names of those who had been martyred. And there were only 20 names on the list. Go back and look at the video and you see 20 Egyptians and one African man in that line. His name was Matthew and he was from Chad. As far as we know, Matthew was not a Christian. There's no indication from his family that he was committed to Christ. But he found himself with these men and kneeling with them. And what we now know happened was that as they came to Matthew and they asked him, will you become a follower of Islam? 
He turns and he points to those that are dying around him, and he says, their God is my God. And he dies a martyr's death for Christ. What was it about the 20 around him and how they faced death so peacefully with such hope, with such joy? What was it that he saw that made him realize it was the path, even if it led in that very moment of profession of faith to the end of life on this side? It was the hope. It was the hope that comes from the risen Christ. And that's the hope we have. I'm so grateful that we have established these times when we come back to the story that roots us, that grounds us, because without it we drift. And so many have. So many have drifted from that hope, drifted from that foundation which is Christ. I'm, I'm thankful for Easter. Yeah, the bunny and the egg. And in fact, the name Easter has nothing to do with resurrection. It's, it is all pagan. It's about fertility. It's about the ancient pagan rituals. And yeah, the church chose to combat that by instead celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. I think that's kind of cool that they did that. I got no problem with that. The, we don't worship the Son. We worship the Son. And we celebrate. We remember that we have life in His name. I hope your faith is encouraged by that. I hope for some of you, as you've heard this presentation have been caught with who Jesus is. And perhaps, as you know, there are many around you who have given their life to Christ. This is the moment where you say, their God, their God is my God. (laughs) Why not declare today your Resurrection Sunday, that you are committing yourself to Jesus, who you now understand is the risen Lord of life, There's no room for neutrality, and you're going to align yourself with Jesus by faith and say, I profess Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I commit myself to Him. Just raise your hand right now so I can see that you're making that commitment. Anybody here? Thank you. Any others? Wonderful. Wonderful. Father, thank you for the incredible hope I always feel on Easter Sunday that no matter how profound we try to explain it, we always fall short of the true glory of this. Words fail. Words fail, Father. But yet we want to say thank you. We want to say we love you. Thank you for those today that have embraced you in that way. And may they leave here rejoicing and celebrating. In Jesus' name, amen.